It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. Thank you for joining us on behalf of Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Brian Whitman. Thank you for clicking on right here at drstuespodcast.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And if you subscribe, you get a little email alert every time there's a new podcast like today is podcast 39. If you've come to drstuespodcast.com, check out the blogs. I love a hazmat birth. That's right there on the blog site. It's the latest. We'll talk about it in a moment. And Dr. Stu has a link here on the main page to Fearless Pregnancy, his book, which is a great book for anyone who uh, expects they might have a child, especially especially you, first-time moms, especially. Yeah, and you know what, guys? Like Valentine's Day, really and truly. <laughs> really, Valentine's Day, right around the corner. You're not going to get points, guys. I, I would go with flowers on Valentine's no, Day. No, but how about in addition to flowers and a date night and a spa day, how about a copy of Fearless Pregnancy? Well, if they get pregnant on Valentine's Day, then they can buy them the book a couple months later. By the way, do you find in your many years as an OBGYN around Southern California, have you found that really and truly nine months out from Valentine's Day, there's a bit of an increase? Do people really get pregnant on the evening of February 14th? No. They don't? Not more than any other day? No, because they have to be, they may be more sex that day or maybe maybe not, I don't know, but they have to be ovulating and Women sort of ovulate around the calendar. They don't specifically ovulate on February 14th. Right. I was watching Modern Family, my favorite show on TV, right? And uh, I think it's a great show. I think you have six or seven favorite shows on TV because every week there's a different favorite show. Well, not really, my friend. The Sopranos is really is the gold standard, uh, and I love well, it. That, well, that's close to uh, Modern Family. <laughs> they have a lot in common. I love all game shows, and I do love Modern Family. That's my favorite comedy. I love it. How many hours a week are you on the game show network? Well, today I watched uh, a... Uh, episode of $25,000 Pyramid. I have about six more on the DVR ready to go. I gave about an hour, and this morning before work, I was up at 1 a.m. I gave about <laughs> an hour and a half to uh, the Game Show Network. But on Modern Family, the uh, it, I, I thought of you, Dr. Stu, and I, because I wanted to ask you. They say, or at least uh, it was very funny on the show, Phil Dunphy, that character played by the actor Ty Burrell. That's right. Right. Okay, so he, he freaks out because his wife and daughters are now menstruating at the same time. Uh, and he does this funny thing about how he had read that if women living in close quarters can somehow get on the same schedule, and he's very funny about how his greatest nightmare has come true. It's very funny the way they did it on Modern Family. That's, that's hilarious they did that on that show because Ed O'Neill's on that show, and Ed O'Neill used to be on Married with Children, right. which was the first show to ever do that bit. And it was very controversial 20 years ago. Oh, uh, Randy, you are. A look at you! You're like an encyclopedia of cultural references and significance. I, I just wasted a lot of time watching repeats. Yeah, of TV. But see, but it paid <laughs> off. You, you guys both seem to waste a lot of time watching watching shows from the '70s. But how 80s. likely is that? Say, say two ladies uh, are roommates. It's pretty likely, actually. Really? Yeah. Call- how does it? It's mystical to me. How might two women who are otherwise on different body schedules? How would they sync up? It's mystical, isn't it? It still it is mystical. There is obviously some pheromone or hormonal thing that goes on that gets them slowly in sync it doesn't happen right away how long doesn't always happen how long if it happens i I don't know i don't know but i know that you know college roommates will eventually get on in sync with each other does that mean a year more often than not does that mean a year within within the year that they've that they're living together sure that to me is wild yeah because it's not something you can predict and it's not something you could say consistently happens but it probably happens more often than random chance would have it 
that would say so. So therefore, there must be something to it. Yeah, and it's interesting because most men, of course, a lot of men, too many men, in fact, regard women as this mystical. They don't understand, and therefore, they don't try to understand females no one, better. No one understands. Right, and then you hit right. us with. Then you get a real doctor here to say, "Oh yeah, no, they can sync up, and we don't know how it happens, but it's mystical." But it happens more times than you, you know. We got we got three single guys and a female cat <laughs> right in the room. Yeah. Okay. And we're talking about uh, well, how about female knowledge? Yeah. Okay. How uh, how good are we doing, boys? Uh, Jamie, you enjoy? Oh, Jamie says yes. The kitty cat, uh, she's enjoying her her time here. Hey, so I wanted to say hello, Brian. Hello, uh, my friend. How are you? It's good. I I was actually going through a little bit of Doctor Stew podcast withdrawal because we didn't. We didn't uh, record last. And what week. are the symptoms of Doctor Stu podcast? Just missing you guys, aching, you guys. Or, uh, and, and, and and getting a pile up of uh, topics and a pile up of emails. You got a lot <laughs> of stuff in your things head. Things start to pile up. Hey yeah. Brian, why couldn't we do a show last week? Now, <laughs> well, there was a long pregnant pause there. Uh, uh, the why, why do you ask, Randy? Instead of me just answering, why do you ask? Oh, because I, I found the reason very funny, and I thought the audience would like to know. No, 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 no. You do not embarrass Brian, okay? Let's uh, say I had trouble down below. Yes. As he had I, the flu, and it wasn't the respiratory kind of flu. Okay? I call it trouble down below, which is an old Navy term. You know, I was in WW2. I was, uh, I was a seaman. Yeah, yes. When I was on the ship, I'd yeah. say, to, I'd say yes. to the guys, trouble down below. And uh, they said, what, you know, down in the hall? I said, no, no. Trouble down below, and that's the kind of trouble that I had actually uh, en route to Dr. Stu's podcast. I said, all right, let's get it done. Yeah, and you had some problems in the car. Mother Nature said, not today you're not doing the podcast. You know, I happen to love you, Brian, because you know what? Nothing embarrasses you, and you're not mad at Randy, and you won't punch him out later. Oh, why would I that's get mad? Cool. Everybody has diarrhea sometimes. <laughs> right? When it happens some, to some you, more than really Some bad. more than others. Yeah, right. right. And yeah. I remember the time before this was the worst. I won't even get into yes, that. Yes, but we're all healthy now, and you know what? It's raining in Los Angeles today. And I love and it it's because... it's sort of nice. Yeah, it's cold. It's co Well, it's not cold relative to the rest of the country, for those of you listening elsewhere. But for us who live in Southern California, it's rainy. And yeah, it was it feels... a high of 60 today. I mean, that's uh, it's a little chilly. Yeah, for Southern Californians, with the rain and that low temperature, it feels like winter, and it is. And I love that. Last time we got together, here we are, podcast 39 of Dr. Stu's podcast. Well, I've been at it a while. We had talked about the flu shot. And uh, actually, since then, I don't think you and I talked about whooping cough. But, you know, there's a... High numbers of the whooping cough in and around Southern California. Law, uh, rather, health officials are being are, are concerned. They're always about, up in arms about something, right? Well, they have to be, right? That's their job, I guess, to to, to track. Yes, the to be to be chicken littles, probably. <laughs> and the sky is falling to protect. You know, yeah, yes, to protect the public, but also it's fear mongering. There's so much fear mongering going around. Well, I saw I in every in every topic, yeah. whether it's a flu shot or whooping cough or greenhouse gases or uh, home birth okay it's always I, yeah scary I was, stuff i was watching dr Stu queen latifah her talk show on cbs in the afternoon don't ask why i was up and the, and the tv was on and actually i like her so i was watching and she <laughs> i think it was her the she's queen does a good by show. the way she's everywhere lately isn't she yeah she was on the uh the grammys, grammys right, and then yeah. i saw super her bowl. on the super bowl yeah what yeah. she what'd she do on the super bowl she was, she was she's oh, a she... linebacker for the seahawks <laughs> oh she sang did she sing uh god bless america or something like that I think so. Oh, yeah. Did she? yeah right. And then this op opera singer did a wonderful job with, with the, the anthem. Uh, with the anthem. Fantastic. Do you know? Do you know that there? I heard on the radio that that Vegas had an over and under on the opera singer whether the national anthem would be more than two minutes and twenty five seconds or not. Oh, how long you did could, it go? You could bet over and under. I don't know. I they, don't know. They also had a bet if she was going to wear gloves or not. 
I asked on the radio. Did what, she? Which I, no. Well, I thought it was a dumb well, question. Well, it was a nice day. It was an amazingly nice mm-hmm. day. On the radio, I said I got a dumb question, and uh, usually I don't even have to preface my questions with that, but this one I felt particularly I wanted the crew to know I had a dumb one coming down the pike. I said, well, she, if she's singing the national anthem, an opera, operatic version, will it be in Italian? If she's singing an opera version. Brian, there are no stupid questions, just stupid people. Thank you, Randy. See, you make me feel good <laughs> for asking. All right, asking. so getting back to the To flu- Queen Latifah, and this is why I bring her up. Oh, it's all right, important. yeah, all right. Yeah. She brought up this app that you can view online or on your phone, and, it, and you punch in your community or the nation at large. And Dr. Stu, it tracks, for example, whooping cough, influenza, all different strains of the flu, chicken pox and you can see literally in which zip code in america there are the most cases so you could look up your neighborhood and say okay what bugs going around literally this block in this neighborhood the pro- the, yeah well I, I don't know if that's good or bad i mean you're not leaving your neighborhood you live in that neighborhood so what are you going to do differently and secondly i mean not everybody with the flu or the whooping cough actually reports it to the uh, cdc so how do they know actually how many cases they have? If a kid has a mild case of the whooping cough and didn't go to the doctor, you don't know that 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 that's a number that you can add up. So, mm. what uh, you know, look at people love facts. Yep, you guys especially you like to you know you like to have everything and all these statistics and things. You like that sort of thing. Yeah, we're sort of drive inf- me crazy. I'm but, an information junkie kind yes, of. Yes, you are. Yep. You are, and you remember things far better than most people that I know. Oh well, thank you. We did talk about the flu uh, at one of the previous podcasts, and and I and I did uh, say that the flu vaccine seems to have no da- real downsides for pregnant ladies, and the CDC does recommend it. But I did, you know, I went home after that because it does stimulate my interest, and I did a little research, and I came up with a uh, an article that talks about the fact that in 2009, 2010, there was a uh, there was some synergistic fetal toxicity because there was a flu shot that everybody got, and then they came out with a second flu shot for H1N1. Mm. And the two together cause some problems. So before anybody gets a flu shot, they ought to look into what's going on that year and what's, what's happening. But still, the CDC and the American College of OBGYN are, are recommending it. Some are mandating it for healthcare workers, and they do recommend it for pregnant ladies. But you just, you know, don't get overdosed on vaccines at any given time. Could you, uh, for anybody, especially if you're a pregnant woman? Could what? No, don't get overdosed on vaccines Whoever you are, yeah, especially whether you're a pregnant woman or whether you're a neonate, could, could you <laughs> don't, could don't you, let your children get overdosed on vaccines at any given time? And I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm just saying, you know, you spread them out, space them out. Don't necessarily have to follow a regimented schedule. And, you know, look, check in with your pediatricians and find out what they think about it. And if they find one that seems a little more rigid than you like, maybe you can check into other pediatricians. Are there, for example, when I was a baby getting my shots, I was born in 1972. So in the, in the, uh, uh, fall of 72 and the early seventies, my mom was taking, I thought, me, you were, I thought you were in world war two. Uh, oh, that's right. I was a Navy seaman. I forgot. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I blew my cover. Darn yes. it. Okay. But so my, 72. Yeah. So my mom was taking me for my shots and you remember this, of course. Right. I remember everything. <laughs> Uh, I remember in utero as well. I remember overhearing my parents talk about, let's take him for a shot when he's born. I'm like, wow, that's weird. I can hear my parents <laughs> from outside. But anyway, is the list longer? Do moms, new moms, are, are there, is there more stuff to take your kid to the pediatrician for in 2014 than there was 20, 30 years ago? Probably. Yeah. I mean, there's always coming up with new stuff and, and new vaccines. I mean, when I think 20, 30 years ago, I don't think hepatitis B, B vaccine was given immediately to newborns. I see. And I'm now not exactly is. sure when they came. Well, it's they try to give it immediately to newborns. There is absolutely no reason 
I can even think of where a woman who's been screened negative for hepatitis B should need to have a baby have a vaccine for hepatitis B shortly after birth. That can, that can wait mm-hmm. down the road. And mm-hmm. I think most pediatricians will agree with that. I'm going to try. I've been trying to find a pediatrician to come on to Dr. Stu's podcast. Yeah. It's hard to get somebody because we record in the middle of the day. Right. It's pretty hard to do that. I may have to uh, see if we can get Randy to give us an evening sometime okay. or a weekend. And maybe we'll get some uh, guests on who can get away. And by the way, folks, we, and we will get in a short while to an email or two. If you want to email, askdrstu at gmail.com. So if you hear something, if you have a question, Dr. Stu responds to all emails. He reads them all. Ask Dr. Stu at gmail.com. Sometimes other professionals will contact Dr. Stu. Sometimes it's a, a pregnant woman. Uh, sometimes it's a, a, a man whose wife is pregnant, has a question. Uh, ask Dr. Stu at gmail.com. And uh, sometimes we read them on the air. Yeah, just another one bit of housekeeping from something we did last, I think it was last, the last podcast, 38. Uh, we talked a little about the woman in Texas uh, the poor woman who subs- has since died. Right. She was declared uh, brain dead. Uh, she was pregnant, and uh, and there was a great debate raging in America. Her family wanted the ventilator to be disconnected right. so that she could pass and be buried. Uh, the hospital had some issues with that. Um, because she was pregnant, and, and there was a question about that. And so, you know, we discussed the issue of, of trying to maybe prolong the pregnancy to save the fetus. I did a little research on that, too, and I found that when uh, someone, someone undergoes such a horrible event where they're brain dead or they're anoxic or their heart stops beating for a short period of time that early in pregnancy, and I think she was only about 14 weeks at the time, right. that there's over an 80% chance that something bad has happened to the fetus as well. And I guess, Dr. Stu, uh, at, at that point, and uh, again, you know, following up on the situation in Texas, it, it would seem to me, although I don't know, but it would seem that it might be impossible to determine uh, exactly to what extent a developing fetus has been compromised in terms of lost oxygen it's, if mom has passed it's out. It's actually not impossible, but it would take several weeks to see changes visible on ultrasound or whatever in the, in the brain or or the growth of the baby or something like that it's not something you can tell probably instantly at that gestational age uh but it, but again in in looking at the different arguments for and against clearly when we had a discussion last time i didn't know that the statistics were so bad yeah. for the fetal outcome right so it makes the family's argument much more understandable yeah of you know what we don't want to deal with any of this stuff and we don't want that long-term problem you did bring that up last time like if there is a problem who's going to pay for it sure if they don't want to right you know, they want it. so you know i just wanted to make it clear that when that happens that early when a tragedy happens that early it's not good for the fetus either. Okay, thank you for the update on that. Really, thanks for uh, tracking down that information. Much lighter side. Well, we try to be accurate. Yeah, we do, we do. It's, it's very important. Yeah. We p- uh, place a premium on accuracy, and we'll talk about that actually in a moment with another press release coming out this week. Oh, right. Uh, that, uh, my, that, favorite, uh, my favorite, sci- science by press release. Science by press release right. in, in a, just a couple of minutes. But uh, before we get to that, on the lighter side of your experience with your doctor, your doctor's white coat, that lab coat, it might be going away. Now, if you're me and you're 41 your childhood was filled and your adult life has been filled with seeing doctors 99 percent of the time in a white lab coat why dr stew is the white lab coat reportedly going the way of the dodo bird oh god this is a story from the new york times uh from about a week and a half ago and really what it says is uh says new recommendations on what healthcare workers should wear 
may mean the end of the doctor's white coat. Wow, it, replaced with what? Just uh, like you're wearing a... You know, it's... Uh, it's no, they're going it, to be nude. It's not clear because uh, ultimately everything you wear is going to be going from room to room. I mean, do they expect you to change your clothes between each patient's room on the ward? Well, let's say Do they say expect you to wear fear, scrubs? Right, I mean, it, I remember when I wore scrubs, you know, I ate in them, slept in them, and uh, operated in them, all, yeah. and, I came, and they wore them from home, and yeah. that's what doctors do. And let's say here, the fear here is that the, the white lab coat will just be a sponge that will transport bacteria all around the hospital, right? Right, as any piece of clothing would. Now, look at if they want to mandate that every day you come in, you have to wear a clean white coat, fine. And, and, and sometimes white coats can be pretty grungy. There are stories of, you know, medical students or residents wearing their white coats going into rooms and there's spots of blood on them from when they drew blood or something else from uh, the day before. Right. Or, you know, or iodine or some other stains on the white coat or maybe a little bit of spaghetti sauce for all we know. Right. And, uh, you know, that's something that, you know, aesthetically bothers people, but is it really a hazard? Has there been an epidemic of transmittable diseases in hospitals or what we call nosocomial infections in the hospital and i don't think there really has i think this is a this is you know me i get on my soapbox about this sort of thing i love it though i just think we have too many bureaucrats coming up with too many different ideas of how to change things thinking that it's going to be better without any proof that it was actually that bad okay but but from the other side here if i may yes if if uh and i'm i I, I was on a roll there by the way but go you know no 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 no, no. i was just gonna say (laughs) i wanted to just give uh, the, the perspective from the other side if a resident or a doctor has what three lab coats would that be normal to have three that you switch around you have three maybe at home just you need two you wear one and you wash one okay okay so okay but yes that makes the case even better let's say you have two there's a greater likelihood that if you're at work clothing attire rotation is two things if it's one coat and then next day the other coat and then hopefully the next day back to the coat that you're wearing the day before nobody's doing wash every day isn't there just common sense and i think this is important and you can go on a roll on this isn't there a likelihood that if you're wearing fewer specific items every day that those fewer specific items will just have more gunk on them possibly but i i need proof that having more gunk on them is actually hazardous you know the white coat is a is a symbol that it you know there's the you know, re- reason that doctors wear white coats oh, is, is this an ego thing is no it's partly symbolic of the role of of doctor to patient and partly it's practical because when you're on the ward if you've ever seen a resident on the ward their pockets are completely stuffed you know with their uh, stethoscope well their stethoscope their their uh, cigarettes their <laughs> their canteen with vodka in it. Should yeah, I that, keep going? That. Right? No. Uh, yeah, their their pocket calculators, their <laughs> their eye looking things, their ophthalmoscopes, Pres- their really prescription tablets, they, yeah, their stethoscope in their pockets and stuff like that. this. Is but but you need those things to carry that stuff around all day long because you're especially when you're working in a hospital on a ward, you're going from room to room to room to room. And you know, no one asks you. By the way, I know you're supposed to probably clean off your stethoscope between every patient with alcohol prep or something like that. I can guarantee you that it doesn't happen regularly and there isn't this epidemic of diseases clearly when someone has when a client or a patient has an infectious disease then when you before you go in that room you put on a like a yellow uh gown and you put on gloves and a mask and a and a, and a boofy hat right and you go in that room but the average patient who's recovering from a hernia surgery you know you're not going to be dragging stuff in and out of that room that isn't just human and around the hospital everywhere and what makes this 
if the nurses are working all day long in their nursing outfit, right? Okay, and they're going from room to room, what are they supposed to change? I mean, everybody washes hands. You've got to do that. But you're talking about. I mean, look at the, first of all. Let me just read you the name of the organization. Okay? Sure, sure. Tell me what you think about this. Okay, the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. My first feeling is it's a long name. A professional group <laughs> whose mission is, to, by the way, their mission is to prevent and control infections in the medical workplace. Now. Who gave them this mission? Are they self-appointed? Oh. Who are these people? <laughs> you know, but they issue a statement. Maybe God gave them the mission. Maybe they issue a press release. Okay, and the New York Times or everybody else jumps on it because you know what? It's a story. It's news. Show me where people are getting sick from doctors wearing white coats or scrubs from room to room to you room. Know, it's a and great, then we'll talk about yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And you are in a role. And it's great because uh, because uh, enter now the media. When this stuff is issued in a press release, I mean, I work in media. What they love to do is, okay, they grab a, somebody issued a press release about white lab coats at the hospital carrying gunk on them and being potentially dangerous. And then somebody at the New York Times basically rewrites the press release and they print that. And nobody's really looking well, at the data. Let me, let me read these two quick sentences to and you. And by the okay? way, that's not exclusive to the New York Times, I want to be fair. Right. Well, this, the authors of this study recommend, or not the study, this suggestion, also recommend that the use of a white coat is not entirely abandoned. Each doctor should have at least two, worn alternately and laundered frequently. And even if they wear the coat at other times, they should be encouraged to remove it before approaching patients. The authors emphasize that the recommendations are based more on the biologic plausibility of transmitting infection through clothing than on strong scientific evidence. Ah, uh, see that? So it's even, a hunch. It's a yes, hunch. It's like, it's like, you know, <laughs> we have an opinion that this might be significant, so we're going to change an historical tradition right. because something might be wrong. I mean, they're even admitting that there's no scientific evidence for this. Right. So what's the story all about? Right. It's, like, it's like nothing. <laughs> the New York Times is writing a story right. to fill a page for nothing. Now, uh, Randy. Oh. Now, uh, uh, pardon me, Dr. <laughs> Stu. Randy Wang. I mean, I, you've seen Dr. Stu. He gets angry, especially when he yeah. thinks there's reports without data and all of that, and he's a data nut. He wants all the data. But do you get the impression that the doctor here uh, really kind of sees a lot of his self-identity in that white lab coat. That's and, why you get the job. Right, you get the job so you can put on the fancy coat. That's what everyone right. wants to see. That's the status symbol. So now they're asking him. What are, what are you guys talking about over uh, no, there? I'm sorry, I see we're, you guys whispering no, we're talking over about there. Engineering thing. Well, you, uh, give us a second. Yeah, something's doctor. wrong with the board. Yeah. Oh. No, so what happens here, dude, is you know you go to all those years of school, and you get out, and you want some damn respect. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? You have and to it, show the world you're a doctor. You're a doctor. So you get to put the coat on, and now some, you know, some uh, pencil. Society for whatever. See, I'm over there screaming. What's he screaming I can, I can hear you. All oh, right. Yeah, so now some pencil pusher comes around and says, take off that white coat. And you say, well, you're not a doctor. I'll take off the white coat when you do eight years of training. You know what it is? you put on this your is, white coat. This is an Obamacare <laughs> official trying to diminish the role of the physician <laughs> to make us into providers, okay? We're just providers. We don't wear white coats anymore. Why should we wear white coats if nurses don't? Yeah, and then, we're then, all equal. It's egalitarian BS. And don't the nurses wear like pink coats? By the do? way, it's not about the white coat because uh, it's most not. of my colleagues haven't worn one in, in you know, twenty years. I visited you at the office. I and think you that wear a nice dress shirt and a nice tie usually. I think that doctors who work in hospitals that have to go from room to room to room, it's you you have to carry stuff with you somewhere. So you're not going to put it in your pants pocket. You're not going to carry a purse or a little black bag <laughs> from room to room. Yeah. So you got to have something. Now you could. Ch I think you could change the white coat into a, 
you know, a different color, a striped coat, yeah, a, right. a plaid I, coat. I'd like a plaid. I'd like a plaid. Yeah. You know what I'd like? Doctor's By the way, you are wearing, you're wearing a plaid sort like of a, shirt right now. A crushed velvet, I think, would be nice for Ooh. your next jacket. I Nehru? Think. How about Nehru? Nehru would be really nice. <laughs> okay, these are all ideas. Let's get to some emails at askdrstew at gmail.com. Askdrstew at gmail.com. And then we'll get to uh, some info on Dr. Stu's latest blog called A Hazmat Birth, which again is up there at drstewspodcast.com. All right, here's an email to Dr. Stu's podcast just to make your day. It comes from Becky Diaz uh, to askdrstu at gmail.com. Becky, thank you. She writes, I just wanted to let you know that I'm absolutely addicted to your podcast. So am I. (laughs) She writes, thank you so much for this invaluable service you're providing. I found out about you from my midwife, Jennifer Ruiz. Do you know Jennifer? All right. No, I don't, don't don't know if I know Jennifer or not. But okay, I, I'm the midwives are talking if I, about if I, Jennifer. Too. By the way, if I do know you and I said something stupid on the air, I apologize. Uh, <laughs> this is great. No, this is the community. Really, it's quite uh, this audience. I tell people uh, when I talk to friends of mine about the podcast, say Doctor Stu really is developing a community. Yeah, she could be a midwife in in the Midwest someplace. Right. For all I know. Uh, Becky writes, "I'm 18 weeks pregnant. I'm having my baby at home with my two wonderful midwives, Jennifer and Mary Oxenberg." Well, I was going to have my baby at home but i wanted my baby to live right well that's what people say right it, uh, <laughs> jim gaffigan jim gaffigan the, the comedian uh she writes i learned so much from your podcast and i'm totally empowered by it and excited about your podcast thank you for that signed becky diaz well that's got to make you feel good. oh my god you know i mean that look at this is sort of why i do what i do here in blogging and stuff like that because i want people to at least get information about options we've talked about it a million times before Thank you for writing that letter. That's Becky. Becky Diaz. How nice. Yeah, Becky Diaz. Thank you so much. And if you want to send some contact information, be more than happy to uh, yeah to keep keep up with you. Yeah, that's great. Eighteen weeks pregnant. She is. Ask Doctor Stu at gmail dot com. Yeah, like, where are you from, Becky, and stuff like that? I'd yeah, like to know. Th- yeah, that's got to and and let us know, of course, uh, uh, how you're going and and how things are going. We have another fun email. I want to save it though for another podcast. We do get a lot of emails here. Ask Doctor Stu at gmail dot com. Well, Brian puts out a little teaser there. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> yeah, no, they've got a fun one, right. uh, but I want to save that. Okay, so Doctor Stu does not blog as much as Doctor Stu used to blog. That's right. Before before he had Dr. Stu's podcast. Right. I have another way to vent now, so I don't need to blog as much. I used to write. Now, I can't imagine you. Before you had a blog and a podcast, every dinner with whoever you had dinner with had to be like a 90-minute rant on something. Yeah, I did rant a lot back then. Okay. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm much more mellow right now. So we're helping you even. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's very therapeutic for me. You guys, you know, you get me started and then you all go off and start whispering and I start to get paranoid about all Oh, no, there's an engineering thing we were talking about, Randy sure and I. We was. were talking about something with the board. Has it been fixed? You fixed it? Yeah, I fixed the board. But, but you know what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. About yeah. the about the wire that we were talking about. Yeah, oh, uh, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. that wire is way loose. Yeah, okay. You know, the wire is loose. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And it's not a screw. There's not a screw that's loose too. <laughs> and you know what? And well, the, that's a little more obvious. Oh, okay. And you know, the microphone we were talking about, that mm-hmm. microphone hates to be offended by others in the medical community. That microphone's yeah. unplugged. Yeah. yeah, right. Right. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Stu has a new blog. I guess you do about one a week, right? No. Well, I used to do about one or two a week uh, up until about a year ago, and then sort of fell off the face because we started the podcast. Sure. And quite frankly, I've been a lot happier doing what I'm doing, and so I have less to rant about or complain about. But I do take up topics that come across my desk when something really turns me on or 
gets me riled up or intellectually stimulated or, or, or positive. I've written, I've written some very beautiful, positive podcasts about, I mean, blogs about experiences that I've had. But the latest one was sort of, uh, I got, a, I got a secret top secret email okay. from an anonymous source who works at a local hospital. Here. Anonymous to you, or you're not telling us who it is. That would be correct. Okay. All right. No, I just <laughs> yes. asked you. And in, in, in the nature of, um, the white coat thing that we talked about where the guy freely admits right. that it's a plausible thing, but there's no scientific evidence. Mm -hmm. This, the, the uh, blog that I wrote is called The Hazmat Birth. And the reason I call it that is because this uh, email, which was sent supposedly confidential, but mm -hmm. you know sometimes these things, when you send an email out, you ex the expectation of confidentiality disappears to some degree. Yep. And also... This isn't top secret stuff because it's it's pretty well uh, known that hospitals are doing this. Right. But it says something to the effect that it is hospital policy at this hospital, and just a reminder that all providers involved in a vaginal birth or birthing must wear goggles or eyewear and a face mask to deliver a baby. Okay. That's just policy. That is a new policy. I'm not necessarily blaming the institution. I sort of blame the institution for jumping so quickly on a bandwagon of an edict that's probably put out by OSHA. You don't like this policy. It's, can you imagine? Okay, no, that's why I'm asking you to tell us what you think of the policy. Well, it's probably, yeah. it's probably an edict put out by OSHA or the Joint Commission, and the hospital sort of has to go along because, again... I don't think there's an epidemic of people getting splashed in the face. Right, you got to dress up like something from Space Invaders. To you wear a baby. hazmat suit, you, right? You know, I mean, look at a normal at a lot of vaginal births at the hospital. They the woman's in stirrups. They cover their legs with drapes. They prep their bottoms with iodine. They wear a gown, uh -huh. and of course, they wear gloves, which makes good sense, right? Uh, and now they're wearing a face mask and goggles to protect themselves from something that should be, I guess, an individualized choice about whether to protect yourself from, and that there's no data that there's an epidemic suddenly happening and I would have of people say, getting splashed in the face. So this, I, is, yeah. wait, so this is one of those things, Brian, where maybe one case somewhere happened, and risk managers or you know, bureaucrats like at OSHA right. come up with these guidelines, or not, they're not guidelines, they're mandates, that say these things have to be done. But can you imagine, it's the birth of your child, yeah. You've, you've been seeing the same practitioner the entire pregnancy. You've had screening for your sexually transmitted diseases. You know that there's nothing there. And, I mean, blood isn't spraying when a baby is born. I've delivered many babies, and I, you know, you don't get sprayed in the face with a, with a birth. And, and you're told that you have to wear this, you know, this hazmat suit right. in order to catch a baby and hand it back to the mother. Yeah. Imagine the woman sitting there yeah. and the father and the, and the grandma and they're looking from the top down and looking at you and they're seeing you with goggles on. Right. You look like something out of a science on. fiction movie. Well, you look like, you know, the woman's got some Ebola virus or something. Well, I was going to, yeah, I think it's very well said, Dr. Stu, and as you were describing it and, and you did it very eloquently, I like to say you drew really quite a word picture there of, of you know, a doctor provider in that getup. I mean, really, if I were mom, uh, dad, all, specifically mom, all that gear, that would be intimidating, especially the goggles. You know, there's, there's your provider, uh, who you've come to know. You know, uh, you've gotten sort of close because, I mean, you've seen this person uh, regularly during your pregnancy. You know this, uh, this person, this doctor, or this person who's catching your baby. Suddenly, this person is uh, wearing all of this paraphernalia, and it's like, well, why, 
Why has everything changed so much all of a sudden? You know, yeah. well, why do you look so afraid of my body? Might be another thing. You know, mom might think, wow, why does the doctor look so afraid of my body with all this protective gear on? Well, and even if even if the doctor or the midwife or the nurse explains this to the mother, they listen. We think it's ridiculous too, but we have to do it because OSHA says we have to do it, or JCO says we have to do it. JCO is the Joint Commission on Hospital Accreditation. It's okay. a thing that mandates what hospital hospitals you know run and if they don't have their accreditation they they fear that, that they're going to lose their insurance and all that stuff but anyway right so um even if they explain it they 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 have to either explain it seriously which looks ridiculous or cynically which is sort of also ridiculous it's negative yeah i i mean i i can't help but be cynical about something like this now i have a good friend who's an academician and he's in atlanta and i sent this to him on my personal email. I sent him a copy of my, my blog, and he said that uh, he thought this was sort of good medicine because he lives in the academic world. Mm. And I, you know, I love this guy, and he and I differ on, on a lot of things and feel comfortable once. And, uh, on challenging each other. Well, and challenging each other. We do feel that way, and we agree on many things as well, too. But um, he says that, that this is good medicine. Mm -hmm. And I look at him and I say, we just have a different idea of what good medicine is. And it's partly because... He looks at birth, and he's been trained in the birth model as illness. Mm -hmm. And I've been trained in the, well, I was trained in that model too, but I've evolved into the birth model as wellness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, granted, in a surgical case where you're making an incision and stuff like that, and blood can spurt upon you, or you don't want to spit into the wound or sweat into the wound, you are going to be wearing gowns at surgery. But a vaginal birth is not a sterile procedure, and the woman has been screened, as I said, for gonorrhea and chlamydia and hepatitis and, and you HIV know all of these things and they're your in. clients and you know them right and and, and the hospital is going to mandate that everybody in the room can you imagine if the baby's coming out and the doctor runs in and he doesn't have time to catch the baby because he hasn't put on his mask and goggles yet or he catches the baby without his mask and goggles and now he's in violation of hospital policy mm. what's going to happen here what are guy what are people going to do are people going to get written up for this i mean it just creates more I, you know what? Bureaucratic just, stuff. It's just stupidity. Mm. Unless they can show me data, mm -hmm. not skewed data, not, not press release data. And not hunches. And not hunches. Not hunches, but right. But sh show me that this has happened someplace with impunity, with regularity enough that you need to change your policy. Yeah, right. I mean, I think hand washing is important because we've shown that going from room to room without washing your hands does transmit infection. As a matter of fact, obstetrics was changed dramatically by a guy named uh, Semmelweis, uh, decreasing infection transmitted yeah. from woman to woman because all he did was simply wash his hands between uh, uh, case from case. Dr. Stu, let me ask something, and then we got one more item, and then uh, we'll uh, see you next time here on the podcast. Question. You are always very eloquent uh, in usually what is opposition to additional regulations, additional sort of you policies, think? mandates. Yeah, and the audience, I think, begins to put this together the more and more you listen, and we thank you for joining us. I'm actually, on... actually anti-stupidity. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, and, we do, and we do thank you, and you get to know Dr. Stu on the podcast, and you hear this. Let me ask you a question, really and truly, all the years you worked in the hospital and whatnot. Is there an area or an idea where you, Dr. Stu, could tell the audience or your colleagues or me or Randy, for example, where you would support another 
restriction, another policy, another guideline, another guardrail? Are there areas, in your view, where the hospital is sort of slacking off and could use a little more regulation? Or are there no areas where you would enforce additional regulations on providers and hospitals? I would, I would enforce regulations and, uh, and new policies when there seems to be a need for them as opposed to think just groups of people sitting there thinking, how can we prevent being sued? How can we prevent live? This policy isn't about protecting the practitioner or the nurse. This policy is about protecting the hospital's liability, mm-hmm. pure and simple, mm-hmm. okay? Tell me otherwise. Oh, and by the way- Are they allowed to do that? By the way, but I Shouldn't di- they be I allowed did... to protect their liability? Sure, but they need to make it clear that that's what they're doing as right. opposed to making okay. it seem like safety right. is the reason. Right. And and the message is, it concludes from this physician who sent out this email that thank you for thank you for cooperating with this important safety issue. Oh, see, right. All right. That's what they're saying. And so that's how they a, categorize if it. If it's a safety issue, then tell me what what's happening. And by the way, I did put a call into this practitioner, this this doctor on staff at this hospital. Yeah. And my calls were not returned. Okay, well, we will uh, continue. Just, just so you know, I tried to, because I wanted to be thorough, yeah. before I wrote a blog, I even left a message saying, you know, this is Dr. Fishbein, I'm interested in this email that I received uh, from an anonymous source. Sure. I would like your comment on it, I'd like to know why we're changing the policy, uh, I'm going to write about this, and I didn't say I was uh, I was anti-policy, I just said I was going to write about it. Right, and seeking information about and, it. And of course... You know, they don't call. So, again, I, I don't know whether she didn't get the message. It was a voicemail or whether or not it's just it's just coward. It's cowardly for them not to come on and defend this boy because it really they aren't defensible. Well, the good news is that uh, here on Dr. Stu's podcast, we will bring you the latest all of the time on all of these issues. For example, we followed the bill here in California. And one other item we want to make you aware of uh, here on this podcast is because we we began this podcast and it started, of course, uh, with the primary passion of home birthing, out-of-hospital birthing, Dr. Stu's participation in that, and advocacy for it, we want to make folks aware that there is an effort underway to ban home birthing in the state of Hawaii. This is an important one, which we will be following. What do we know right now, Dr. Stu, about this effort in the state of Hawaii to ban, full-out ban, home birthing? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure the motivation behind it. Uh, Usually it's motivated by, again, anecdotal a uh, bad outcome or okay, something like that. Right. It, this is a uh, Hawaii Senate bill, state Senate bill number 2569 and it's a petition, well actually it's a bill that wants to make home birth in Hawaii illegal to be attended by a licensed practitioner, which basically means that in rural Hawaii or people who choose to have a home birth in Hawaii will have to do so without any qualified attendant there or a qualified attendant will risk committing a crime by assisting a woman with a home birth. This is absurd. This is a violation of choice. It's a violation of the options that are supposed to be uh, to respect individual autonomy. Are there folks in the movement, Dr. Stu, on the ground in Hawaii? Who yeah, are- yeah. You can go on online and you can put, uh, if you want to put in kill Senate bill number 2569 and Google that or go to Facebook, you'll find somewhere on on my web, on my Facebook page, uh, it's just Stuart Fishbein, my Facebook page. You scroll down, you'll find a petition that you can sign. You can go on and try to, to get uh, people aware of this. Yeah. Spread the word. This is insane. Even if you're anti-home birth, the idea of making it illegal is just going to make 
it go underground. It's not going to go away. Well, and in those, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, those rural areas, and of course, it doesn't have to be Hawaii. I mean, you go to southern parts of our our great country here in the continental U.S., and you can go, uh, I mean, a really, really, really long way before you see another house, let alone a hospital. You know right. what I mean? Right. So people do live sometimes uh, not close at all to uh, facilities that might provide uh, medical yeah, and attention. Yeah, and these bills are silly because if if a woman is delivering at home, say she didn't plan on delivering home, but she went so quickly that the baby's coming out and the next door neighbor happens to be a truck driver, he can come over and help her deliver the baby. But if the next door neighbor happens to be a midwife, okay, right. she's got to be really careful about coming over there because she could be convicted of a crime. It's scary. It's insane. It's scary. It is insane. Right. It it's is insane. insane. And I just want to say one more thing about about the press, uh, the science by press release. Yeah, which is a great phrase. The same, I love two, that. The same two characters from Cornell University who we talked about on a podcast previously about um, think, saying that there's a 10 great, 10, tenfold greater risk of a zero APGAR score at five minutes. I remember that. Yeah, we talked about that and how they put it out by press release. And when the paper finally came out, there were a lot of flaws. They used old birth certificate data, which is traditionally flawed in, in, in research. These two same guys using the same data have put out a new press release suggesting that there's a triple neonatal mortality rate mm. in home births. The article is supposed to come out tomorrow, but the press release has been out for at least a week. And all I would say to that, and to anybody who sees scientific data in press releases, if it strains credulity, you have to wonder if it's really true. Does anyone really believe that the death rate of neonates is three times higher when you're talking about low-risk people giving birth at home who are choosing to give birth at home, who are planned home births? We're not talking about people who accidentally gave birth at 23 weeks at home. You know, I don't know how they're going to sort through this data. I will, of course, critically look at this, and right. we'll talk about it in a future podcast. Yeah, right. But the idea is the damage is done because this was picked up by different new media outlets, and the headline says stuff like, you know, study finds increasing trend in home birth neonatality, more neonatal right. mortality. And people rates. just read the headline. And they and, read the headline. Right, and, right. and, and then if they Google home birth, this is going to come up. Not that it's, cra that it's a, a, a reasonable option or that here's one side of the story, here's the other side of the story. They have the power of the university and the power of the of, uh, public relations department and a media department to put out these press releases. Midwives and, and doctors like me who do home birth, we don't have access. That's why I love my podcast. So yeah, much. we do have this resource, and thank you for that. And Dr. Stu will, of course, uh, uh, really comb through this Oh, and this by the report. way, Dr. Grunbaum or Dr. Uh, Grunwald, excuse me, I think it's Grunwald, and Dr. Chavernak, uh, you are welcome to be, I'm inviting you on my podcast anytime, any day. Just give me a call uh, or actually email us, and we'll get you on. And if we have to do it by remote, We'll even do it by remote. We can do You're that. You're welcome to join me the email. and discuss your, your, your study. That's great. AskDrStu at gmail.com. That's the email address, AskDrStu at gmail.com. And it is, uh, as, uh, as we move forward here, just another Stuism. Trust your common sense. You know, that's uh, something Dr. Stu says all the time. Trust your common sense when you're reading this stuff and consuming these reports. And thanks for joining us. Check out the podcast on iTunes. Subscribe and write a nice review. Give Dr. Stu five stars on iTunes and yep. you'll get an alert every time there's a brand new it's podcast. It's nice to see you guys. It was great to be back. I, I got my dose of my podcast. I'm feeling much better now. Good, good, good. Well, you, you got your fix. I got my fix. <laughs> and well, you, I'm, I'm off to my last Kings game before the Olympic break. The Kings are in a terrible slump. I'm, go, go I've Kings, been really go. depressed, so yeah. I'm hoping we're going to pull it out tonight. Yeah, are, are they giving uh, with the, uh, with the, uh, with the, uh, at the, when you go buy a hot dog and a pretzel, are they all also giving 
like a Prozac as well to the fans <laughs> with they, the Kings they logo ought, on it. They ought, and you know what? I have I have to say one last thing about the um, the Fairweather uh, Kings fans who oh, who the season ticket holders who sell their tickets on StubHub. At the uh, Blackhawks game the other night, there must have been four or five thousand Blackhawks fans. Yeah. At the stadium, you know this doesn't happen. In you know, you go to a Blackhawks game, there's not four thousand Los Angeles Kings. Let me fans tell you something. It doesn't happen in New York. Yeah, at the Yankee not the Ranger games, games or the Yankee games. That's right. So you know, you fair weather fans, you know, if you bought season tickets, come to the goddamn games. All right. Okay. There you go. Go Doctors, Kings. Go. Go Kings. Go for sure. Thanks for joining us for Doctor Stuart Fishbein. I'm Brian Whitman. Thanks for listening to Doctor Stu's podcast.